Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm your host, Kayla White. In this episode, we're exploring an issue that reaches back to before Arizona was a state, and it still impacts Phoenix today. It might even affect your neighborhood. Hi, this is Garrett, and I live in Phoenix, and I've been wondering, did Phoenix ever have a history of redlining to control where minorities could live like other cities I've read about? So, what is redlining? Did Phoenix have housing segregation like so many other big cities across the country? And how does that affect life today? Let's dive in. When Arizona became a state in 1912, it had two laws about segregation. One banned interracial marriage, and the other allowed for segregated elementary schools. But what about this other word, redlining? What is it? It starts with the Great Depression. Among the many problems Americans faced, one was losing their homes. A lot of people lost their houses to foreclosure and a lot of people lived in slums. President Franklin Roosevelt sought to fix that. We have been learning steadily all over the nation more about the need of better housing for our citizens. To help the American people, the federal government got involved in housing. President Roosevelt led the creation of the Home Owners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, in 1933. At first, Hulk refinanced mortgages and helped people keep their homes. But as part of their work, Hulk also created maps of more than 200 cities across the country. They appraised the real estate risk or security of each neighborhood. Assessors gave the neighborhoods one of four ratings. An A grade was green, B was blue, C was yellow, and D was red. They looked at the neighborhood's sales and rental rates, the quality of the buildings, the terrain, and, quote, the threat of infiltration of foreign-born, Negro, or lower-grade population. Neighborhoods with poor people, people of color, particularly black people, Jews, or immigrants from Europe or Asia, were deemed hazardous for bank lending and outlined in red. Hence, redlining. Housing segregation and racial discrimination had already been happening across America, but redlining made it official. Redlining is when banks don't offer home loans in mostly poor and working class communities of color. Uh, And this has been a practice that has functioned in the United States for roughly a century. That's Rashad Shabazz, an associate professor at Arizona State University who focuses on geography and race. Redlining let banks deny home loans to minorities and immigrants, but that wasn't the only way they were kept out of nice neighborhoods. An important component of redlining uh, is something called restrictive covenants. Uh, Restrictive covenants are restrictions that are built into the deed of homes. So all homes come with a deed and there are restrictions. You know, you can't turn your home into a supermarket, you can't paint it pink, you you can't uh, turn it into a hotel. But in the early part of the 20th century, all throughout the country, 
there were racial restrictions put on. So no Chinese, no Jews, no blacks, no Mexicans, right? For example, he said in Chicago, these covenants blocked minorities out of 60% of the city's housing. So did this happen in Phoenix? I wanted to get that answer directly from the source, from a City of Phoenix official. Uh, I'm Kevin Waite, and I am a principal planner for the City of Phoenix Historic Preservation Office. Does Phoenix have a history of redlining to control where minorities could live? Yes, unfortunately, Phoenix does have a history of redlining. Um, we know, again, that uh, banks refuse to give loans to minority groups. We know that you know, when, when the neighborhoods were subdivided, there were deed restrictions in place that specifically state that um, anyone who is not considered Caucasian was not allowed to purchase property or to live on the premises. And, you know, that you start to see that really in the teens and in the 20s, it becomes very widespread. Unfortunately, through a lot of our historic districts like Willow and Encanto Palmcroft and FQ Story, um, you know, kind of the pride of Phoenix neighborhoods today. But at the time, there was a lot of discrimination. I posted in a local Facebook group for history buffs asking if anyone has seen racial covenants in home deeds in Metro Phoenix. And a lot of people said, yeah, they see them all the time. One man responded with a photo of the deed for his house near 32nd Street in Thomas, dated 1947. It said, quote, none of the residential lots nor any part thereof shall be leased, let, sold, transferred to, or occupied by anyone who is or whose spouse is, or the members of whose immediate family are, of other than the white or Caucasian race, and this exclusion shall include persons having perceptible strains of the Asiatic, Mexican, Mexican Indian, American Indian, Negro, Filipino, or Hindu races, end quote. There is an exception for domestic servants. So, where were people of color allowed to live in Phoenix? This is Kevin again. We do know, you know, we were able to find a map from 1937 that shows basically areas that were considered hazardous for realtors. They basically advised them, stay away, don't do loans here. And it was pretty much everything south of downtown where, you know, minority residents lived. I looked in ASU's library for old videos about housing segregation in Arizona, and I found a program called Arizona History, a Chicano Perspective. In one part, it featured Ray Martinez, who helped found the first Latino American Legion post in the country right here in central Phoenix. This is Ray talking about Phoenix in the 1930s or 40s. There were very few Hispanic families living north of Van Buren. There were some, but there was a definite discrimination in housing. As to, um, as to services, well, at that time, uh, <clears throat> uh, Washington Street was more or less the dividing line. Anything along Washington Street, well, you could get service. But if you got north of Washington Street, it was doubtful. If, if you were Hispanic that was not too dark, you might be served. But if you were too dark, you, they, you would be turned down for sure. I asked Kevin how the red line ended up being around Van Buren or Washington Streets, which are like a fifth of a mile apart. He said it had to do with the Salt River, which runs just south of downtown Phoenix now, a little north of Broadway Road. The Salt River has a history of flooding. 
And so in the 1890s, there were a couple years where the floods were so bad that the water rose all the way up to Washington Street and you know, practically up to Van Buren Street. And so from that time forward, anybody who could moved out of the south part of town and went further north, and that's when we start to see neighborhoods like Roosevelt and Coronado and Willow and F.K. Story really start to flourish because that's where the wealthier Anglo residents moved to. And the people that were left behind in the south part of town were poor white residents or African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans, really the minority groups were the ones that uh, didn't have a choice in the matter or those that didn't have the money to move. Some people reacted to the discrimination by creating new neighborhoods of their own south of the line, like this one near 13th Street and Buckeye Road. But Lewis Park was subdivided in the 1920s. And interestingly, it was done by uh, a developer who was Hispanic. And the deed restrictions in that subdivision say that you have to be of Spanish descent. <laughs> in other words, you have to be Hispanic to live there. So we kind of see the reaction to you know the, the discrimination by whites. The Hispanics said, okay, you know, Duke can play that game. We're going to go ahead and say, this is our neighborhood. This is, this is for us. The Supreme Court declared in 1948 that these restrictive covenants were unenforceable, but the words weren't magically erased from deeds. You might still have a racist covenant in the deed in your home. And housing segregation continued. Even without those racist covenants, there were many ways to control where minorities could live. Real estate agents wouldn't show homes to minorities looking in white neighborhoods, and banks wouldn't give them loans. Here's an example. Lincoln Ragsdale was a businessman who served the black community in Phoenix when our city was still segregated in the 40s and 50s. Many businesses wouldn't serve minorities, so Lincoln started a mortuary, a real estate agency, several insurance companies, and an ambulance service to serve them. In 1949, he married kindergarten teacher Eleanor Dickey. Soon after, the couple joined the fight to desegregate Phoenix schools, and they won. At the time, the Ragsdales lived near 15th and Jefferson Streets in the East Lake Park neighborhood. As their prominence rose as civil rights leaders and they had one child and another on the way, they decided to look for a new home. Eleanor became a real estate agent, and in 1953, she found a house in the exclusive North Encanto area near Thomas Road and 15th Avenue. But real estate agents wouldn't show the home, which was in a predominantly white neighborhood, to a black family. The Ragsdales decided to make a statement. They had a white friend buy the home and then transfer it to them. Herb Eli, who became friends with the Ragsdales after they moved and worked with them for decades, said it was Eleanor who orchestrated it all. Eleanor essentially did it on her own and didn't initially tell Lincoln where they were going. The Ragsdales had barely been able to see the house before they moved in. And they had a hard time initially with a lot of hatred People would not talk to them. Uh, they would, uh, when they would walk down the streets, there were wise remarks uh, to, uh, in effect, uh, saying, what are you doing here? One day, the Ragsdales found the N-word spray painted on their home. The discrimination didn't stop them. 
Eleanor kept fighting it, one house at a time. What she did was to provide in her real estate business and made a special effort for black people to move into more comfortable and frankly white areas in town. Just one week after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which is more often called the Fair Housing Act. Now with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. It prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, and financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. But that also didn't suddenly end housing segregation. Herb Eli, the 85-year-old lawyer who fought discrimination alongside the Ragsdales, remembers desegregation in Phoenix like this. The the desegregation came about quicker uh, than, than normally because we had such a small population of blacks compared to every other large city, always under 5%, closer to 4% of blacks. So that the fear wasn't there that all of a sudden uh, in the white community, blacks were moving in and going to take over. Some people followed the path the Ragsdales forged, fighting to integrate white neighborhoods but others fought to strengthen those minority neighborhoods. One of those communities is the Eastlake Park neighborhood east of downtown. Booker T. Washington spoke at Eastlake Park in 1911. As more black people moved into the area around the park in the 1910s and 20s, the park became the center of black life in Phoenix. It hosted social and recreational events that welcomed those who were cast out of other neighborhoods. During the Great Depression, the park sponsored a summer softball league for black, Hispanic, and Asian kids. Less than a mile away is the oldest black church in Arizona, Tanner Chapel AME Church, where Martin Luther King Jr. spoke in 1965. It's where the Ragsdales lived before they moved to the white part of town. But Calvin Good still lives in the small pink home he bought at Jefferson and 15th Streets in 1955. I'm Calvin C. Good. I live across the street from Eastlake Park. And he's 92 years old. I met him outside his house in May, and we walked to the park together. Even though it was really hot, he wore a brown suit and loafers. Did you want to see the... Sure. ...monument over there? Let's okay. <laughs> this is a civil rights memorial at Eastlake Park. Can you read the part that has your name in it? Uh, Calvin C. 1971, Calvin C. Good, an African American, is elected to the Phoenix City Council and served 22 years, the longest term of any council member in Phoenix history. We went into the park's rec center and sat down to talk about its history. 
Well, certainly we had discrimination, segregation in the city of Phoenix and nationwide. So we were very pleased to be able to have a facility that we could attend and participate in. So this, this park was developed for that purpose. For decades, Calvin has worked to improve Eastlake Park. He and his wife worked with the Neighborhood Association to better the area's streetlights and roads. He founded a childhood development center that still serves the neighborhood's kids. Even as Eastlake Park has changed and lost some of its buildings and people, Calvin is still fighting to protect this neighborhood that, not long ago, was a haven for black people. Uh, every week I get notices from folks who want to buy and build high-rises, and I say, no, we need more affordable housing in this community. And uh, we're very proud of this area in terms of what we have been able to develop, but there's still more to be done. It's been more than 50 years since the Fair Housing Act was passed, but the effects of redlining and housing segregation live on. Many say housing discrimination still exists. For example, a 2013 report from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development found that the typical black or Hispanic person looking for a home is shown fewer houses and apartments than a white person with similar qualifications. That's in this decade. And you can see it on the news. HUD Chief Dr. Ben Carson recently gutted an Obama-era regulation designed to combat segregation and discrimination in housing. The gap between white and black ownership is wider now than it was in 1960. It might even be a topic in the 2020 presidential election. Democratic candidate Elizabeth Warren has proposed legislation to repair the effects of redlining. Redlining is about more than just homes. This is Rashad Shabazz again, the ASU professor. The most important impact that it's had is that it has shaped the development of wealth along racial lines in the United States. So uh, as a result of people of color, particularly uh, black Americans and Latinos being denied access to, house, to home loans, it has subsequently undermined their ability to generate wealth. Most Americans generate wealth through housing, not through stock markets, you know, not through 401ks, retirement. After the Great Depression, the federal government made it easier to buy a house. But thanks to redlining and racial covenants and denial from banks and real estate agents, buying a house often was only available for white people. And not only did redlining block people of color from building wealth themselves, it also hurt their neighborhoods. And in Phoenix, uh, black, brown, and Chinese neighborhoods were redlined. So a significant portion of the population in those communities didn't own their homes for generations and generations. They were largely renters. Uh, and the few that did own their homes couldn't get loans to make improvements in their homes. So over time, the, the value of the home deteriorated as, as did the structure. Even if you don't live in a neighborhood that was mapped and delineated in the 1930s, Rashad said redlining and housing segregation shaped how all of our cities developed, making them more segregated. Racial housing segregation is the dominant form of organization in our cities all across the country. 
We have come to believe that racial segregation is normal and natural, meaning that because all urban neighborhoods across the country are organized along race lines, we've come to believe that that is just a sort of normal, natural part of urban life in American cities. Uh, and it's not, it was created through public policy. And who we see in our neighborhood affects how we see the world. Racial segregation has significant impacts on our ability to have empathy and to be engaged in relationships with people who are not like us. You know, we have had a century of racial segregation and we have become so used to having communities where everybody looks like us. If we are going to ever solve the problem of racism, one of the things that we have to do is we have to be next to each other. We can't solve the problem of racism where everybody is living 25 miles away from each other or that we only know uh, people of color through caricature on television or you know some meme on the internet. We have to find ways of building community. So the answer is yes. Phoenix has a history of redlining and housing segregation to control where minorities could live. And our city's history of segregation goes beyond that. There was segregation in schools, restaurants, movie theaters, and resorts. There was employment discrimination. Phoenix had a civil rights movement too. This episode scratched the surface of just one element. If you have more questions about Metro Phoenix's civil rights history, submit them to us at valley101.azcentral.com. Oh, and Republic reporter Elizabeth Montgomery wrote a great story about Lincoln Ragsdale. I'll put the link in the show notes in case you want to read it. Thank you for listening to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Let us know what you thought about this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Valley101Pod. All right. Thanks for listening. See you next week.